Hello and welcome to this episode of Tourist of the Universe. I have a really great, really great guest on today. His name is Bob Peck. He's the author of Original Sin is a Lie, and it's just such a great book. Um, we are going to touch on several of the questions that were sent in about Jesus and kind of where you want to go with your faith when you're deconstructing, when you're trying to figure out who Jesus was, who Jesus is to you, is Jesus even real? All of those questions that come up for you when you're going through the deconstruction and faith shifting process, that's what we're here to talk about today. So if you have a chance, though, to pick up Bob's book, Original Sin is a Lie, I've got to say it's probably one of the best books that I've read that allows you to incorporate your faith and your personal experiences with what history has to say, with what other leaders in faith and, and beliefs have to say. And he has just so much insight that I feel is so helpful when you're in that process. So welcome, Bob. Thanks so much, Ashley. I appreciate it. Appreciate the yeah, words. Thanks for being here. So I did want to start out with talking about just who Jesus was for you, is for you. Where did that start? Kind of a little brief history on, on where that's gone for you. Sure. You know, um, you know, despite the title, Original Sin is a Lie, uh, I think some folks jump to the conclusion that I am a provocateur. And I guess the title is a little provocative, admittedly, um, but it, it comes out of a sincere love um, because I believe that Original Sin um, is a much later tradition. It's a much later uh, creation. Jesus, for example, says zero um, about original sin. Um, it comes from Augustine, St. Saint Augustine of Hippo. Um, and so we, we can go there. But back back to Jesus, I really, I mean, I really uh, honor Jesus of Nazareth. I really appreciate his teachings. I think that they are as good as it gets, frankly. I mean, I, I put him on the altar with the Buddha, Krishna, you know, essentially enlightened or what's sometimes called avatars of humanity. Um, Jesus started for me. I'm from, uh, I was a boy in East Texas. I'm, I grew up in Austin, Texas. I, my family's all Austinites. Um, but I was a little kid in East Texas and we actually were Easter Christmas Christians. We went twice a year. And as I say in the book, uh, which means that it was cool. <laughs> it was okay to go to church um, because we got to dress up and uh, it was a beautiful little old wooden church that was like pretty. And we would do, go to like the candlelight Christmas Eve service and it had just all positive for me. Uh, the pastor was terrific. Uh, I still keep in touch with. Um and uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed all that. It was when I was about eight or nine, I started going to a friend's Baptist church, which is different. I was Episcopal. Um, oh. we, were, we were just Easter Christmas Episcopal. We were like pretty clocked out. And um, But my Baptist friends, family, uh, they're uh, wonderful humans, uh, by the way, but the church that they went to was kind of all, had some of those characteristics of Texas churches that, uh, you know, definitely leaning into fundamentalism in terms of rigidity right. and, um, and, you know, exclusionary. I, I, I write about it in the book. A little old lady came up to me and said, um, you know, essentially, would you like to have eternal life? If so, 
just say these magic words that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I just remember being like, that's, that seems like there's more to it. Um, yeah. You know, and so I guess getting exposed to that variety of characterizations of him at a, at a young age. Um, and then I went to university. I went to UT, uh, UT Austin and studied comparative religion. I'm not a Bible scholar. Technically, I just have an undergraduate degree, uh, but I'm a student of Bible scholarship. I specialized in formative Christianity, and um, and it was uh, really profound. I highly recommend if anyone's interested in Jesus and Christianity, um, you know, hopefully my book is a decent intro to some scholarly, scholarship kind of principles, but we have the great fortune of the last about 150, 200 years of you know, academic scholarship around the Bible and the New Testament in particular in terms of mapping them out. We know just about every word, every freaking paragraph and comma, um, and we've compared them all. We have um, really exhaustive comparisons across portrayals, uh, which humanizes the whole thing. Um, it, it makes it a lot more accessible. Um, and so the Jesus that emerged from scholarship, to come back to your initial question, to me, it seemed like Jesus that I really appreciated was typically more historically reliable, whereas yeah. the Jesus that has this kind of kingly authority is kind of the end-all, be-all creation um, comes later. In fact, it's that's really the main portrayal in John, which is by far the last gospel, the latest gospel written in the New Testament. So you can see the evolution, actually. In, yeah. in Mark, for example, which is the first gospel, he has a failed miracle. He's kind of this crazy desert wizard, if you will, in Mark, uh, who his Nazareth doesn't get and um, you know, he's more mysterious in the earlier gospels, whereas by the time you get to John, he's the king of the world. And that's who, that's the Johannine Jesus is who American Christianity, um, is interested in. And so that's, that's a creation yeah. of the Johannine author, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm not a Bible scholar and, you know, I went to church growing up. Here's the Bible we didn't talk about the origins of it. And so learning that everything was written so much, so many years after the existence of, of Jesus. So it's, it makes it more understandable that some of the beliefs that we have today might not necessarily match up with what actually could have occurred. So that leaves room for flexibility I think for me, understanding the process of how the Bible was compiled, when things were actually written, and you do talk about that um, in your Bible or in your book, which is great. And it, for me, it's interesting, like that you found Jesus in in your scholarly studies, and that you didn't connect with him necessarily in your youth. Um, I didn't connect with Jesus in my youth either, which. People, I think, sometimes are really surprised to hear because I was so Mormon. Like, I was all in. I went on a mission. I I did all of the things that Mormons do. And so much of Mormonism is 
Jesus is your savior. There's the repentance. There's the atonement. There's everything that is associated with Jesus being the the person that allows you or bridges the gap between you and God. And so this in-between person. But growing up, Jesus didn't make sense to me. So <laughs> like we would have... As it doesn't make sense, Ashley. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and, so, and it's validating to learn that, you know, mm-hmm. later in life. But when you're in it and, and when you're in this atmosphere where... Your, your spirituality is being developed and there might be some true principles in in some of the other things that you learn. In Mormonism, so much of what is taught as truth is what you feel is true. And it so it uses emotion to kind of prove truth, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. And so like I never had that emotional connection with Jesus. I felt like I believed in God and I had some experiences that would validate an existence of some kind of God. And so Mormonism really shaped my beliefs on that in my early years. But whenever people would explain, okay, you need Jesus because you are here on this bottom level and God is up here and he's the stairway that gets you there. It just never made sense to me. And then when I started, uh, even on my mission though, like I'm supposed to go preach of Christ and I wanted to preach about God. I didn't want to preach about Jesus. So I remember sitting in the missionary training center and watching this video that they had on where Christ appears in the Americas, according to the Book of Mormon narrative. And all of these people are like in tears around me at that video. And I'm trying so hard to feel you what wanted the tears really like i just like there's got to be something here all these people feel something and i just don't feel any connection you're not broken ashley <clears throat> i'm not broken and now i know that <laughs> like i'm thankful that i didn't have that <laughs> that connection that that was just yeah. me knowing that there was something there was something else coming um but when i started doing mediumship the the idea that like jesus takes on your burdens and Jesus is the one that heals you of your imperfections. I didn't see that in the readings that I was doing. So I would do readings where, you know, mediums connect with deceased people and people that were, for lack of a better term, what Christianity would consider sinners. Like they didn't have anyone fixing anything for them they had to be responsible for it so often i would have people from in readings come through and see they were in some type of a healing process but they were doing the work and like i remember one of the first readings that i did where this person's grandfather was not a nice person he just wasn't a nice person and so when i brought him through he the grandfather showed up as very sorry for what he'd been doing, but then said he'd been working on healing. But there wasn't a Jesus involved in that healing. So at that point, I was like, is Jesus even real? And is Jesus even real? And so I ask you, what what is your mystic view on Jesus? 
as far as evidence and what we know and what other yogis said, where where is Jesus for you or what is Jesus for you in the, what is he? Yeah, in kind of my view, which is really the mystic's view, um, you know, he's he's a human being who broke the veil. Uh, so in Hinduism, the uh, there's a term veil or the illusion is called maya, which is essentially this idea that, um, you know, the physical world, which, which uh, I'm not a scientist, but some of science is starting to show us that it doesn't quite have the solidity we, we thought it did. Um, you know, the physical world has this kind of dreamlike quality of separation and um, what kind of the Eastern philosophies consider ignorance of our true nature. And so by becoming more aware, compassionate, um, rooted in ourselves and our connection to creator and all creation, uh, the veil starts to thin. You start to see your oneness. You start to see the unity with all things, um, including, of course, yourself. And, um, you know, yeah, I believe Jesus did this. I do think he broke the veil. He tells us to love your enemies, uh, which is uh, radical especially for the Iron Age. Um, you know, and he forgave his killers. Those are kind of my two go-tos. Uh, I, I'm absolutely hypnotized by some of his parables uh, as teaching stories. They're extremely um, profound and worth contemplation. The parable of Good Samaritan, for example. Again, it's right. as good as it gets. But but um, forgiving your killers, I think, is his... Is, 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 uh, thesis, you know, if you will, that's his kind of life's work, uh, culmination to, uh, be dying a brutal, humiliating death in front of your mother, in front of your friends, in front of your community and to have compassion, um, right. for your killers is it's, it gives me chills just thinking about it. Um, that's someone who sometimes it's called unity consciousness or some Christ consciousness. Um, right. however, as the mystics, um, are, you know, uh, essentially non-exclusive the the mystics aren't uh, don't have that same rigidity to um you know institutional religion um there's a wide variety uh, once you study these people there there's men and women throughout history throughout time periods and cultures and different civilizations that have expressed similar ideas um you know i think buddha and jesus are uh, strikingly similar. Uh, Krishna's very close. Um, and so those those three I compare, I consider them avatars, uh, much like Paramahansa Yogananda considered them. But there's, I'm um, actually reading a book about female saints, I think you and I were talking about it, Women of yeah. Power and Grace, which is terrific. Um, and the Ananda Mai Ma is one of the, probably the most famous uh, female saints of the last century that I'm confident to, to consider her an avatar or an awakened being completely egoless person you know yeah yeah can you explain the concept of avatar because that that was a new concept for me outside of i guess <laughs> there, there's yeah, a lot again, of different ways that avatar it's not the james cameron movie um, yeah it's not the james <laughs> movie it's not the psychedelic experience it's right. it's different it's different yeah sorry it's a it's a sanskrit word uh avatara um it comes from a hindu holy text called the bhagavad gita uh, the Bhagavad Gita is, um, you know, a Bible basically of ancient India, um, and it is uh, 
it's incredible. It's just, it's just a dialogue between two characters, Krishna and Arjuna. And, um, it is a, it's a tiny little moment in this epic poem called the Mahabharata, um, which is, um, I believe it's 10 times longer than the Homeric epics. It's, you know, it's essentially, um, this amazing, um, tale of families and dynasty and war. And, uh, I haven't read all of it kind of thing. Um, you could study your whole life, um, the Mahabharata, but just, there's this little moment in it called the Bhagavad Gita. That's the conversation, um, between Krishna, who is essentially a Christ of ancient India. He was a King, um, but he was a, uh, an enlightened man, uh, enlightened God, if you will. And, uh, Arjuna is like the, he's kind of like the Achilles, uh, they're on a battlefield and, um, uh, Arjuna hesitates famously and says, I don't want to go kill those. I'm seeing my cousins across the way here. And the guy who tr taught him archery is on the other side. I don't want to fight. This is pointless. And, uh, it's symbolic, of course, uh, as great mythological texts are. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can read the Gita, you know, in a few days in a week, really, um, can, but study it for a lifetime. Uh, but the avatar doctrine comes from the Gita. It's about, I think chapter four and, um, Krishna tells Arjuna, he says, I'm paraphrasing, um, when, when wickedness takes over on earth, I rise to set virtue on her seat again, the when humanity is in need, um, due to egoic, you know, violence or famine or, you know, power, corruption, et cetera, democracy, there's a, a brother or a sister, if you will, of an, another creation, another child of creator who, um, eliminates the ego in themselves that restores this perfect connection with the divine and the, the potentiality, I think of what's important about the avatar doctrine and kind of from the Yogananda really perspective, Yogananda was a 20th century yoga master, Hindu philosopher. You know, the, the read is that we all have this potentiality and that's, you know, probably the biggest difference, right? Between Christianity and, uh, you know, Eastern philosophies and mystic philosophy, but, uh, right. but, but we all have it in us. And that's, that's, that's the team I'm on, you know, I yeah. suppose it's, it, we're the team of all of us as the team, uh, yeah. you know, but, uh, the Christian the Christians say, oh, well, I'm not Jesus, man. And it says, <laughs> well, well, you know, a Hindu might say, well, maybe not yet. Yeah. That's what I love about that idea is it kind of confirms that we all have this divine potential to embody this this greater consciousness, this greater sense of who we are. And so for me, I understood it. The way that I saw that concept was just somebody that embodied more divine energy. And when we think about how, it, for me, in energy work and in the different practices um, that are involved with that and meditation and, and all of the spiritual world that we see kind of coming more into focus or into light right now. I I do see those as ways where we can embody more of that kind of energy. But for me, the 
I think the most important aspect of being able to embody that type of consciousness is the ego part, is being able to set that aside, is being able to connect on a level with our fellow humans and really embody the teachings of Jesus and, and many of the other masters, which are love your neighbor, do unto others what you would have others do unto you. Everything that comes in through not judging others for being different. So basically, for me, when I saw the teachings of Jesus in action, it it put this um, separation between what I was seeing as good and, and allowing people to really progress spiritually versus what I was seeing in church, which was based in judgment and a, a checklist of things that you had to do in order to be accepted. Or And so it's it, it's like it took something that was a spiritual concept that had flow to it and an expansion to it and tried to put it and simplify into little checkboxes that were absent of flow is how Absolutely. that feels for me. Beautifully put. <clears throat> Yeah, there's a really, um, there's a gradation, right? As opposed to the black and whiteness of, did you say the magic word or not? You know, yeah. did you do the, you know, and uh, actually, I, I love Catholics and I'm, I'm reading like Catholic contemplatives right now and I'm like blown away. However, right. at the same time, <laughs> Catholics are complicated. There's a lot of uh, nuance to Catholicism, of course, and a friend of mine was telling me we were at a bar, and it guy was like, "People hear the name of my book, then they share their stories." And this guy was like, "Oh, he goes, he goes, it was like a football team. You had to do all the moves with the hands, and they's like, right. we didn't even know what the heck we were doing anymore. You know, <laughs> it gets so distant from the initial practice." Um, yeah, let me read you this little quote here. Um, from Yogananda writing about the avatars, he says, all human beings are potential gods. The wise man and the ignorant one both are true image incarnations of God. The divine omnipresence fills each soul image, even as the mighty ocean is present in each wave. However, unless a wave dissolves itself and becomes one with the ocean, it remains inordinately limited. Until a devotee is fully liberated, he cannot truly assert, I and my father are one. Yeah. So, I love that. Yeah. Can we just have some nuance to it? I mean, yeah. you know, it's like. Flexibility no of thought. Right. I, th I think that with, with my personal experiences and where I landed, per se, in my beliefs in Jesus, nuance is was the bridge and I say like nuance was a more effective bridge than what I had been taught Jesus was like the bridge from <laughs> me to God like yeah. I got farther with nuance than with trying to lean into the doctrines of Jesus being the savior and the only way um so one of the questions that came in was um and I'll just read it I think there are many who acted as a Christ archetype I just want to know if he was an extra special one. <laughs> ACIM says, be wary of specialness. Specialness is typically egoic. You know, yep. 
Um, though I think the worst thing, I mean, the worst thing probably in the one of the, you know, one of the worst things on this planet is the mindset of chosen people. Right. Because as soon as it's chosen people, it's violence. Um, and that's, that's what creates all the wars we're through. We're seeing it happen right now. There's a chosen people, quote unquote, that's bombing the heck out of people that are trying to get a sandwich. Um, I think he was, he was as special as you can be. I'll put it that way. I'll, 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 I'll answer that person in a sincere way, which is to say, look, if you, a a friend of mine texted me recently said, you know, I love, I have, I feel like I've had a relationship with Jesus and it's hard to like walk away from some of the Christian stuff. And I said, you don't have to leave, go deeper, Yeah, go deeper with Christ. Really also the Christian mystics and the Christian contemplatives highly recommend um, for Christians that are becoming more spiritual, but don't want to leave that foundation. You don't have to, Uh, you know, if if maybe if you're like Ashley and you never really felt the Jesus connection, read about the Buddha, read about uh, the, read the Sufis, read Rumi, um, you know, do the, uh, one way I categorize my work is I say spiritual buffet line. You right. know, it's like just sample. You can sample different things, and then once you find what is hitting for you, uh, Ramakrishna was this great Hindu guru from the 19th century who talked about um, the. He was his whole kind of the purpose of his incarnation or his avatarhood, if you will, was to demonstrate the validity of all paths. He, he has all these really simple parables where he says something like, there's many ways to get to the roof. You could climb a ladder. You could scale the wall. You could climb the fence and jump from the fence. You could climb a tree. You could swing on a rope. They all work. Um, just get to the roof. You right. know, that's really like a Hindu. That's a very Hindu. That's why they're so great. They're very universalist. But it, it, it what that does is it validates... I think what also like modern psychology, modern psychometric kind of assessments are showing us is that people are different. We have different psychodynamic needs, psychoemotional needs. And so that's what these different paths are for, guys and gals. It's it 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 fits different people based on where they're at. Right. If God is infinite, then there's infinite ways to get to God. Exacto mundo. Yeah. And and I don't want to um to say that there's not a valid reason to have a connection to Christ, because I feel at one point I I did form a connection, but it wasn't in the same way that I'd been taught. Um, at the point where I was, th- there was a point where in my deconstruction, I was asking if, if Jesus was even real. I Could he just have been some made-up thing in the Bible and some morphing of all of these other similar yeah, tales plausible. that people have told, right? Did you watch Zeitgeist? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, but I probably said <laughs> there's but, there's some Jesus myth out there. It's bad scholarship, though. He was yeah very 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 historically likely a human. There's all of this information that gets to be really confusing when you're trying to just get something that's true. And for me, I do lean into my personal experiences heavier. I think than. Scholarship, I appreciate scholarship and I take scholarship into account. Mm-hmm. And then um, I 
I rely on my experiences to say whether, like test out whether or not that scholarship makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but I guess I kind of just an experimenter. (laughs) So I had this experience. Is there something that can explain this? Yeah. Knowing that I'm not going to say that my experience didn't happen. The mystics Um, are very experiential. Right. And, and, uh, you know, there's a really quote from Vivekananda. I can't think of it exactly, but he says something like, you can't believe in God until you have some experience of him. Right. Right. You know, it's like that, then you're like a hypocrite, (laughs) you know, and it's like, that's (laughs) what all of like Abrahamic tradition is, is like faith without, you know, just blind faith and, and, um, yeah, the, the Hindus, I, you know, love the Hindus, man. If I think <laughs> with, uh, Americans aren't as familiar with them, but, you know, I think that we've been There's told a lot of that they're tribalistic pantheists and polytheists, whatever. They, they're the most sophisticated philosophers you've ever read in your life. I mean, it's they've, they've explored right. all this stuff for thousands of years. Yeah. Ad nauseum. Uh, yeah, I've also found just what you have in your book and, and some of the other things that you run into and just in the world of spirituality. Um, I, I also really appreciate a lot of the insights. I haven't studied it enough to say I know it, but everything that I come across, it's like, oh, that makes sense. But there, there was this one point where I did form what I felt, what I felt was a connection with Jesus. And it was after a friend of mine who had been an atheist her whole life, just not um, religious at all. And then at, at one point she started learning energy healing modalities. And she told me that when she was learning these energy healing modalities, that she felt that there was someone named Yeshua that came in and helped her. And she felt that that was Jesus. And it like flipped this switch in my brain that, wait, 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 Jesus isn't savior. Jesus teaches us how to heal. And and that was like the flip switch that I needed to open up my heart space to understand that, oh, there there is more here. There's something valid here. So what what did Jesus say? What did he bring to us that helps us how that helps us learn how to heal? And that that made sense to me when I started doing readings and having these people who were doing all of the healing themselves like it it wasn't that someone was doing it for them in that savior sense it was he's taught us how to heal and how do we heal we it starts with love loving ourselves loving all the things within us being able to love our neighbors all of the things that jesus taught all of those parables that were so masterfully spoken that's how we heal that's how we heal ourselves. That's how we heal our relationships. That's how we heal the world. And that's where I really connected with Jesus and where I really fell in love with the teachings and the general idea that Jesus didn't say, worship me. Jesus said, follow me. And so with that, and just some of my own personal experiences for those listeners who do feel that they have a connection with Jesus he doesn't have to be a savior. He doesn't have to be all of these other things in order for you to have a legitimate connection with Jesus. I think he was a real person. And I think just like all people, 
even when we die, we exist, our souls exist. And so you can absolutely have a connection with somebody that that isn't present physically. So we, we did get a lot of questions about, you know, how how do I validate or how do I hang on to these experiences that I had thinking that I was connecting with Jesus, my savior, only to find out that maybe Jesus isn't my savior. And, and to that, I, I say you could still have a valid connection with Jesus. You, you didn't have to be a savior to be somebody who embodied this divine energy and greater consciousness that we also can embody. And he's still the example of uh, our culture and of our, you know, and not just our culture. Obviously, he's somebody that's um, taught worldwide. Um, so I just want to take a second to validate that if there are, is a listener that feels like they have had sincere connection to Jesus, just understand that that connection isn't there because you're unworthy. It's not there because you, there's something you need to be ashamed of that he can take away from you. He's there because he's a healer. He's someone that teaches you how to embody this divine person that you are and get to that higher level of spirituality where you you feel better <laughs> i yeah I don't know one of the or not. Ab- yeah absolutely i um you know the the word savior is so loaded it ha- carries a lot of like theological implications with it you know um i what i i mean avatar is also maybe an unfamiliar word to your listeners um you know big brother Basically, right. it's kind of how I look at the guy. You know, he's a big right. brother of humanity. We're all children of creator. And he's a big brother that's helping his younger siblings reach what he reached to. Um, this is right there smack dab in the middle of the New Testament. This is John 1. Um, it, it says, but to all who did receive it, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right. I mean, there's empowering stuff in there. Uh, John's complicated because there's reasons to invalidate it, but then there's also kind of gems that are worth contemplation. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in my book is basically tell, you know, I think on some level I'm telling the religious people, you know, here are some issues, but on another level I'm telling the secular crowd, don't throw out the baby with the bath. Exactly. You know, there's because there's, there's there's some there's some good stuff in here. The baby's precious. Really? It's just the bath water <laughs> that needs <laughs> that needs a refresh. I think um I think one of the other things that comes up a lot is uh we're taught like you know, you have Easter where Jesus died and rose again so that we could rise again and just like this idea that if he hadn't done it first, then we wouldn't be able to rise again. So almost like this requirement for the body um, to be eternally with us in order for us to be a whole soul. What do you have to say about the idea of the body not being the most important part of the whole soul? How can it be? It's temporal, it's transitory, it's sand going through the fingers, it's bones and soil 
in a few minutes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's bizarre to me. Um, the Christian institutions kind of worship of the body, not kind of, absolutely, they worship the body. Um, when you read also the guru stories, so kind of another New Testament formation alongside of like Hindu and Indian philosophy um, are like my specialties. I've also read a bunch of guru stories, man. They're so fun. They're so beautiful. They're so profound. And they use similar um, parables to Jesus. So Jesus uses agricultural parables to explain things, the mustard seed, so on. Um, parable of the sower, all these different farmer kind of things. Well, so do the Indians. The Hindu teachers um, use very similar teaching styles because they're teaching to rural communities. Um, what happens with many of the masters is they is they reappear to their disciples. Um, it's not that uncommon. I mean, it, it is, obviously, because it's not happening to you and I. <laughs> right. you know, we're not seeing grandma usually. Maybe you are, actually, but most human beings aren't. But not with aren't. their body. But not with their body. Yeah. Um, Raman has appeared to many disciples. Um, Yogananda, actually, in his, in his masterpiece, um, Autobiography of a Yogi, if anyone's kind of intrigued by uh, any of the Hindu stuff I'm, I'm putting out, um, that's a great start. Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, came out in the 40s. Um, he was a he was a young he was he was basically a uh, spiritual little boy in India, and um, he had all these kind of synchronistic experiences and met different saints. He was very passionate about spirituality, and finally he meets his guru, and it's this beautiful. Uh, moment in the book and his life. And then the guru essentially eventually sends him to America. And he basically says, they need your help. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he arrived in America um, kind of from his guru lineage in 1920 in Boston um, and um, really just impressed the hell out of uh, Christian America in the 20th century, which was quite the feat for a Swami, um, you know, obviously English is a second language, uh, right. but he taught meditation to millions. He, he loved Jesus too. You know, the Hindus love Jesus. The Buddhist monks love Jesus. All these guys get, get Jesus Christ. Um, and, um, yeah, Yogananda basically not spoiler alert, but at the end of at towards the end of his book, um, his guru, Sri Teshwar appears in the flesh. Chapter 44, Resurrection of Sri Yukteswar, and they have a conversation. Um, and this isn't, again, this isn't an isolated thing. This happens in a variety of these stories. It's because when you break the veil, again, back to the idea of the avatars and the enlightened beings, when you break the veil, you're able to rematerialize. Like, right. you know, I, I realize I'm, it sounds funny to say it ain't that big a deal, but it really, it's just, he, Jesus isn't the only spirit or human, you know, human incarnation that's able to do this. He might've been the earliest or one of the earliest, I guess, in this kind of round of human civilization, but, um, you know, yeah, it happens. One. He's not the only one. And so, um, I, you know, the, the message of the crucifixion in this case, uh, from the mystic standpoint, the resurrection of Jesus is that man is spirit. 
that human beings are actually ultimately spirit, not the body. That was what he was trying to communicate. And, you know, unfortunately, Paul, who didn't know him, Paul did not know Jesus personally, and he ended up being essentially the actual theological foundation of Christianity. Um, he knew uh, Jesus's brother, James, which most Christians don't even know Jesus had a brother. But anyway, um, Paul is the one who kind of started the blood ransom thing. And okay. um, and the Gospels eventually, you know, uh, carried it over. And, and then, yeah, all of a sudden he's the... He, he's the he's the ticket. He's everyone else's blood ticket. sacrifice. The blood sacrifice, and what happens actually back to back to the Gospels, the Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, right, are the four New Testament Gospels. There's dozens of other Gospels, by the way, but these are the four that the Church Fathers included. Um, in these four, like I was saying, there's an evolution of the Jesus character. In Mark, he's mm-hmm. much more human. Matthew, he's very Jewish. For example, Matthew's the most Jewish gospel. Luke, he's more uh, concerned about the poor and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, because it was written outside of the Jewish homeland. And then John is written much later. Uh, It's mystical, and so it has its uh, profundities, but it's also not very historical. Um, Just as an example of the crucifixion-resurrection comparison here, um, in the crucifixion narrative, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm a little little rusty on it, but I write about it in the book. Essentially, when he is killed, the day he's killed, um, in the earlier three, what's called the synoptics, I believe it's at, at least two, he's killed on the Saturday. But on John, he's killed on the Friday, uh, on, on Good Friday. Um, and this is significant because by the time we get to John, He's the Lamb of God, right? In the early, it's not as it's not as important theologically to the earlier gospel writers the day he was killed, the day he was sacrificed, quote unquote. Um, but then you start to see this: um, the Passover Lamb was that would that would be slaughtered for the Sabbath uh, on Passover. Um, Jesus replaces that in John, so that's that's the big Christian move, right? Is that um, you know, he's the Messiah, he's the Jewish Messiah who is, uh, he's the last sacrifice needed, you know, church goers are going to be familiar with that kind of language. Um, right. that's, that's only in the last gospel. You can see the development occur in the text. Uh, yeah. So, you know, yeah. Which invalidates, which, which to me shows the humanness of it, shows the politicalness of it right. and, um, kind of reinforces, uh, what I'm kind of trying to do and what other mystics are trying to do and kind of decoupling that from, right. from the actual teachings. Yeah. I see a lot of, um, a, a lot of influence of people who didn't understand the world around them and doing what, like the idea of any type of sacrifice being needed feels very much to me just like people not understanding the world of, around them and thinking that they have to do something in order to get something in return. And so for me, even just the idea of sacrifice, I see a parallel. Yeah, transactional. And so for me, it's we go from a transactional understanding of 
how love works to a, a real true understanding of how love works and that you you know Jesus is the one who said yeah you don't have to do all that you don't have to do all this checklist this is this is what you need to do you need to love your neighbor you need to care for the poor you need all of these things that right. show us what Beautiful love teachings. actually is right and it, it's not tribalistic it's it's the opposite of that it's this rise in consciousness and awareness and i think that right now humanity is very much in another right raising of consciousness um and i think that it, for us to be able to really get where we want to go as humanity i do feel the teachings of jesus are invaluable one of the things that's frustrating is when people use Jesus to justify harm or justify a war. For instance, what's going on in the Middle East? Like, assuming that, like, I've seen those those awful pictures of Jesus on a battlefield carrying the flag of the country that Crazy. is bombing and killing thousands of children. Yeah. There was a great quote. I haven't seen book. much of those. Like, we must have different algos yet to send me, and I'll. <laughs> I, I don't know if I want to say it again. If I, if I say it again, I'll, I'll send it to you. But it's yeah. awful. Um, but we probably do. I have a lot of you know family that's it's pretty that's ignorant. Cool. You know, um, you know, one uh, ironically, one of the real, one of the coolest things, put it like that, that the avatar does, is they correct the institution of the day in particular jesus and buddha both do this um buddha was born um a prince and um he was a he was a hindu you know indian prince uh, we, i won't go into great detail with him necessarily but he you know had this famous moment where he left his the palace and and tried to become a hindu ascetic he's like there's wealth and, ha and that's not the way to peace and then he tried hindu asceticism he almost died that's not the way to peace what he came to was buddhism is sometimes called the middle way you know it's life of moderation and releasing on right. dependence on the external world and desire and so on um but he what hinduism at that time had become kind of empty ritual basically uh, a lot of his life was going around kind of not in an egoic way correcting you know that not to he he was not very he's not a patronizing guy the buddha but he is what happens is in same thing with jesus people will come up to them you know their their reputation precedes them obviously and they kind of um they get they get people coming up and challenging them you know essentially it's like well prove to me and he just buddha just slices and dices um, you know, in ancient Hinduism's case, there was just a lot of emphasis on like the proper ritual to do and the, the way to burn the fire and the, what time to do it at. And he basically, he says something like the only fire is the fire that's burning. That's lust, the fire that's anger. That's the fire you should be worried about, you know? Um, and of course, Jesus does this. Uh, many times in the Gospels, uh, particularly with the Pharisees, who were the one of the religious institutional sects of his day, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan is an absolute Molotov cocktail right. towards the religious institution at its 
so fantastic. And it's it's almost a shame to me that it's lost its fire, right. you know, because it's, it's like the about. hospital, the good Samaritan <laughs> yeah. hospital, be a good person. No, what he's That's saying is <laughs> the religious institution of his day crosses the road and doesn't help the yeah. wounded man. But the Samaritan, who was an ethnic out- outcast, the Samaritans and the Jews had gone to war in centuries prior. They didn't like each other. And he says the Samaritan is the one who takes care in his story, takes care of the wounded man, brings him to an end, pays for the man's healing and so on. And he says, which person did the right thing? And they, the, 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 the man who asked the question, he even says the third man, which, which might indicate that he was even unwilling to admit that the Samaritan would do the right thing, unlike the Jewish priest. So, you know, Jesus is going all in on correcting of the institution, just like Buddha. That's what the avatars do because they're, they're embodiments of truth and courage. Um, right. and so it's a, it's a bitter irony. It's a, it's a sad yeah. state that Jesus has become, you know, this institutional figure. What, what I see from that story too, that I love so much is like the idea of something separating somebody or somebody being inferior, all of those ideas that there is less goodness in someone else are inaccurate and are, are the illusion. The, I think it was in Rob Bell's book, What is the Bible, where he said similar things, that the Samaritan was so looked down upon that to even say Samaritan was like, Jesus is called a Samaritan <laughs> by the Pharisees in, a, yeah, in another an part. Insult. They're like, they're like this freaking Samaritan over here. Yeah, yeah, it's so inferior that the guy couldn't even say say the name Samaritan because it was yeah. that looked he down upon. And yet, this it. is the person that's the hero that is the right. hero. Yeah. And um, and so a lot of times where um, where I my final deconstruction where it's like I I can't be a part of this institution anymore is where, I mean, in Mormonism, and I know in other religions too, there's this we're better than them type of an idea yeah. or like we have the full gospel, they don't. We have the truth, they don't. We are the the people who are doing all the right rituals and they're not. And it's very, for me, pharisaical. That's, that is what Jesus was like, hey, that that's not, that's not it. Uh, and then any type right. of justification I think in um, any type of war or any type of defense, the story where, you know, Jesus is about to get arrested and Simon Peter cuts off the ear of the Roman mm-hmm. soldier and he he heals the Roman soldier, he puts his ear back on and tells Peter, hey, the, let's not use the sword. And so in your book, you because a lot of times I remember uh, back in the time in the day when I would invest in <laughs> arguing with people on the internet. Yeah. It's been a while. Don't do it. I I don't do it anymore. But there was one person who justified like the use of violence, basically that saying that Jesus would be okay with violence because Jesus even says that he brings the sword. And mm-hmm. but but the juxtaposition of that is Jesus said not to use a sword. So right. what does Jesus mean when he says he brings a sword? 
It's a great question section in my book, which we talked about, which you're you're alluding to. Um, yeah. It's definitely worth understanding, I think, for especially Christian America. Um, the line is Matthew 1034. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So literally, it does sound like a general. Right. Right. It does. Um, however, this is still this is the same guy who says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute yep. you. Um, and so what what I explain in my book in terms of a line like that, um, I'm also I'm borrowing heavily from both Bible scholarship on the one hand and the mystics and the mystical experience. Those are my two you know, areas of fountains of knowledge and wisdom that I'm meekly, humbly trying to get a sip from. Um, to understand a line like this, you have to understand the idea of who the audience is that Jesus is talking to in terms of his teaching. Um, this section of my book is called Symbolic Layers of the Teaching. Um I start out actually with, of all people, a quote from Swami Vivekananda, who was a Hindu, Hindu monk who loved Jesus. He says, to the masses who could not conceive of anything higher than a personal God, he said, pray to your father in heaven. To others who could grasp a higher idea, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. But to his disciples, to whom he revealed himself more fully, he proclaimed the highest truth, I and my father are one. Um, so kind of in Vivekananda's example here, there's basically three layers of an audience. And in this case, the audience helps us interpret the meaning. You have big crowds, like the Sermon on the Mount. You have smaller groups, kind of smaller teaching moments. And then you have the disciples. Um and don't at, don't take it from me, our Swami Vivekananda. This is in the Bible, Mark 4, 10 and 11. says, when he was alone, those who were around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. He said to them, to you is given the mystery of God's kingdom. But to those who are outside, all things are done in parables. Um, it, it was also dangerous. I don't know if I talk about this in my book exactly i've talked about it on a few podcasts but it was freaking dangerous to say that some of the stuff that he was saying um right. you know so parables were a way that you could kind of hide the message a little bit um but yeah so again the light is do not think that i've come to bring bring peace to the earth i've not come to bring peace but a sword um so this is given to the close disciples this is in john so it's john is very mystical it's very symbolic. John 1 is, I mean, it's almost Gnostic um, in terms right. of its spiritual symbology. Um, so it's given to the close disciples, which means it's highly symbolic. It's highly centered around his true identity. Thankfully, we have Yogananda who helps us interpret this verse. Um, this is from Yogananda's book called The Second Coming of Christ, The Resurrection of the Christ Within You. He says, Think not that I have come to bring material peace for souls to be settled complacently in earthly life. I came not to offer short-lasting material happiness, but to give to the valiant spiritual soul a two-edged sword, 
of wisdom and self-control, divine strength and determination by which he can sever the compulsions of material passions that might obstruct his attainment of the everlasting happiness and freedom. Uh, I love that. <laughs> Quite the poet, Yogananda. Um, yeah. And I'll just kind of finish this moment by saying in the book, I referenced Joseph Campbell, uh, the famous uh, mythology professor, um, writer of Hero of a Thousand Faces. He's terrific. Um, he was asked about this line, and he mentioned the uh, Sanskrit term vivika, which means discrimination. And he mentions uh, Manjushri, who was one of the uh, most significant bodhisattvas. Um, Manjushri is always pictured with a mighty flaming sword cutting away the veil of illusion. So across, in terms of a comparative religion view, in terms of the kind of the world mystics, this right. isn't, Yogananda's interpretation of it isn't far-fetched. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's common really. in terms of using spiritual language like that. So, so yeah, I think a little bit of both, you know, a little bit of the right. scholarship around the context and the audience itself alongside of the mystical meaning. Um, yeah. Helps us read a line like that. And, you know, and it's unfortunate to your point. It's like how many, you know, army guys have that Matthew 10 34 on their bumper sticker. You know, it's yeah. like, it's such a shame, but happy to correct that one. When we see it as something that severs the illusion, like the illusion that you are separate from your neighbor or that this person is inferior, the illusion that you have to build yourself up, the, the, just all of the illusions that would prevent us from really truly connecting and loving our fellow men and embodying that that consciousness that is that higher consciousness that is Christ consciousness. That makes so much more sense to me and is so much more in line with everything else that Jesus taught. And I think that if, if anything, what I what I want people to understand or learn about Jesus is that uh, whether you believe Jesus was, you know, a, a God or an avatar or the son of God or whatever that is, the, that the most important part is the teachings, those parables that teach you all of these things over here are an illusion. Like the idea of a border separating you from someone else and making them a different person or or not as worthy of or deserving of what what you have in you like the the idea that we have to protect ourselves from the heathen fellow men mm -hmm. is so the opposite of what Jesus actually taught. And so if if we could embody those teachings more, I truly believe that's how that's how we heal the world. That's how we make the world a better place. Which is why when we have stuff going on, like in the Middle East, speaking to peace is what Jesus would do. Jesus would not be there holding a sword on a battlefield. Jesus would be protecting the children by, it, it, it would not. And he's a, he's not a healer, be. like you said. He's a healer. He's not, he's not somebody that is there defending. He didn't even defend himself. Right. Like he, even when he knew he was going to be arrested and eventually crucified. He he did not give or grant permission for somebody to harm someone else in order to protect him. And so where is that lesson 
where can we apply that lesson in our own lives? Where are we being overly defensive or choosing to be uh, choosing to excuse some of the behaviors that are harmful to others? Like if we were to really follow what Jesus said, we would love our enemies. We would mm-hmm. want our enemies to heal. But then there's that thing where if if you love your enemy, you don't have an enemy. That's how you get rid of enemies is by right. loving them. That d- dissolves the that dissolves barrier. all of that that barrier exactly. So, as far as some of the other questions that came in, um, one of them is how how do we get over fear about being wrong if he's a mm-hmm. god or not. How do we get over the fear of being wrong if he's a god or not? That's interesting. I don't. I haven't really thought about um, the question from that framework. For um, me, yeah, you start. Uh, for me, there isn't anything that Jesus taught that would suggest he would condemn somebody who was loving and doing their best to just be a good human like he did the the times when he condemned people it's when they were thinking they were better than other people it's when they were doing things that were harmful to other people they were caught up in ego they were caught up in checklists they were the pharisees and the sadducees that's right the only time he he ever really said hey (laughs) don't do that yeah and it wasn't even A lot of the fiery rhetoric is from Matthew, which is, um, which was very much uh, a fierce sectarian period for the Jewish people. It was right after the temple was destroyed by Rome, was when right. the Gospels were written. Um, and the Ma- the Matthean author, the author of Matthew, is. Um, you know, essentially fighting for Jewish uh, converts against the Pharisees. So the Matthean Jesus is the one where you get him going. That's where he calls the Pharisees den of vipers. That's not in any other gospel, Um, you know, where he he says some mean stuff. That's where you get weeping and gnashing of teeth to talk about towards the end of the book and kind of uh, basically decoupling the hell thing, um, which I'm happy to do. Uh, Dan McClellan, if anyone follows him, did has done some pretty good good work on this the silliness of yeah. hell and eternal damnation. And I and I you know I, it it seems like that one's hooked a lot of folks. And maybe yeah. that's what this person is afraid of. It's like if I'm wrong about Jesus. You know, and it's all right. And then I'm so I'm going to cook. Um, you know, it takes time because you have to study, you have to see what Ashley and I are talking about in terms of the humanness of the Bible, the idea of this black or whiteness being political and creation of ego. And once you once you see that the mystics and the avatars and the masters are just embodiments of love and unity um it 
the whole it's, thing. It's not consistent. Up. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not consistent to right? say that that you'd have to burn. And and I did. I remember yeah. reading, and I don't know if this is accurate or not. Um, I did read it in the book. What is the Bible where Rob Bell talks about? hell like you have to understand what they were talking about at that time like he wasn't necessarily saying he wasn't talking about a future time as in a future time after you die he was talking about a future time when we all figure this out and can learn to get along but it was all very much still on this earth and when he mentions hell like it it has more to do with like the city dump or the the place where you know yucky stuff is like if you do this kind of a thing you'd be you'd be cast out to the city dump because that's i mean that's the kind of it's garbage he's basically just saying that's garbage to do something like that so everything kind of you have to read it in the context of the time where the hellfire and brimstone and all of that it it doesn't really fit into everything else that Jesus says. It's a later development. It's a later development. And one of the messages, though, is when when Jesus talks about harm, like for you to be able to repair this kind of harm, you'd be better off doing this because repairing this and, and the type of harm that's done there, I mean, that's a big deal. So he's just like emphasizing how big of a deal this kind of harm is. So please don't do it. Um, he's not literally condemning people to to hell. He's teaching people how we create a better world and giving an example um, of why this giving you a sword prevents us from discrimination. Yeah, to cut <laughs> so, through the veil, cutting through the illusion, letting you know this kind of stuff it doesn't belong in this better world that we're trying to create, and so I. I feel the it's just not consistent with Jesus to care if we're right or wrong. It, it doesn't matter because that that's all an illusion. That w- the the idea that right and wrong would separate us is an illusion, and we we cut through that illusion with that sword. So thank you so much for being here. Um, I think that those are the main questions. The rest really kind of were answered. During the rest of this podcast, I really appreciate Great. your knowledge and your insight. Is there anything you want to add or close with? Um, you're not dirty. You know, yeah. that's all. It's like yeah. the the more you excavate, maybe there's some dirt on top. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the the mystics talk about polishing the mirror which I like that image, you know, the mirror, when the mirror is perfectly clean and pure, it reflects the light exactly back, just like the source. That's, that's us. But maybe we got some polishing to do. Maybe we got some, you know, some marks here or there. And that's just from our own ignorance about ourselves. It's, it's not, it's not a stay, you know, it's not this, uh, unredeemable, thing that requires someone else you know it's it's we're the ones that can do it and 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 i do believe that we connect with even the holy spirit we we can connect with these higher you know powers being you know i'm open to that um but at the same time 
it's not like uh, there's a there was a good. It's funny that it was a comment of all of all things that I'm going to reference here. Um, they said Christians are worshiping the door instead of walking through it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, let's let's walk through it. Let's walk through it together. Yeah. So that's a great a great way to end things. Thank you. Great for your time. Thanks so much, Thank Ashley. You.